welcome Jimmy Conrad to the American Outlaws podcast. We have um, Jimmy, as you guys probably know, is an MLS champion, an MLS defender of the year, four-time MLS Bet 11. He also featured in a World Cup. And most importantly, he was the officiant of an American Outlaws wedding. So, Jimmy Conrad, how have you been, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited you guys have gotten a podcast off the ground. Uh, I think it's in due time, and I'm excited to be one of your guests. Where'd you get that shirt? Show well, it. Well, AOKC, I did a uh, pickup game in Kansas City at the brand new facility, which is like the most amazing facility of all time, which we've discussed when we were there. Uh, somebody brought orange slices. I don't know if it was you, but uh, somebody did. And it was an amazing experience. And then somebody handed me one of these shirts, which I will gladly support and wear at all times. Love it. Love it. So we're going to start you off with a little section that we like to call drinking beer. Oh, cheers. Like, wait, not- I didn't get a drink. What, this is BS, man. We're going to start it off with a look at this photograph. Okay. Cody, show me the way. This intro graphic is amazing, by the way. I love it. <laughs> this is high uh, budget stuff here, Jimmy. About, about what the, what okay. in the photo and what it means <laughs> to you. All right. With music? Look at this photograph. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got photograph number one. Take us back to Arrowhead Stadium. Well, I would say that it looks like Davey's the one getting the red card here. That's first and foremost. And if he, if it's not him, it's actually me. He should maybe get one for also grabbing the referee's arm. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there's a there's a lot to work through here. It's a it's an amazing photo. So I got a foul on or got called a, a foul called on me. Excuse me uh, on Dimitar Berbatov, and we were playing a friendly at Arrowhead Stadium. We knew this was going to be a good marketing opportunity for us to win over the Euro snobs if we could beat Manchester United or at least compete, right? And we went up one zero. Davy scored a very good goal. Good 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 through ball. Thank you very much. We go up 1-0. And at this point in the game, it was maybe, I don't know, 30-some, 35th, 40th minute. I don't know. And Giggs has the ball. It's kind of funny to talk about it like this, but Giggs has the ball. He picks his head up, and I see Berbatov maybe leave a step early. So I hold my line. But at the t- same time that Giggs was, was also looking up, he kind of looked over his left shoulder first or over to the left, and that got the other center back, Shavar Thomas, to run with the other runner. I can't remember who the other striker was. And – that held on Berbatov. And so you're in this situation where you're trying to get back in the play. I don't want to give him really give him a freebie. I wanted to make it somewhat difficult. I mean, we had Jimmy Nielsen in goal. He's probably like wagging his tongue back and forth like a gajillion <laughs> times like he always does. Uh, and, and in fairness, the guy was so unorthodox with regard to his 1v1 goalkeeping that maybe he would have saved it. I should have given him a chance to do so. But uh, I didn't. I, I took a big chunk out of Berbatov and then claimed I got all the ball. Or all the ball. As you do. That's proper. Yeah, as I do. That's not proper grammar, but I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> and he, I mean, a, a red card was the right call. I know that Sir Alex Ferguson was pretty pissed because he didn't want to come play a friendly and be down a man. He, he was encouraging us to put another player on the field. But uh, Terry Vaughn, the referee here, obviously following FIFA rules to a T and, and uh, <laughs> threw me off. And I was a little disappointed. You know, I had some friends that flew out to come see the game, and, and there was a lot at stake. And to make it 1-1, you know, it's a little bit of a rush of blood to the head. I tried to be a hero, a hero uh, as one does, and it didn't work out that way. So I went and felt sorry for myself for the next 20 minutes, I think, on the ground, just laying there. And uh, little did I know that right before halftime, Kai Kamara had scored a header. 
So everybody comes back into the locker room and I'm just still feeling sorry for myself. And, and I had no idea that we had scored. I still, still thought it was one, one. And I'm like, Oh, we're going to get smoked now. And nobody ever told me. I never knew they, they all walked in. I had no idea we had the lead. They walked back out to play the second half. And, uh, <laughs> And then I walked out there after taking a shower to, to catch the you know last 30, 40 minutes. And then I realized we were up 2-1. I was like, oh, this is great. And then we ended up winning. It was all good. It ended <laughs> up being a great thing. I will say, though, the crazy story about this game and this play in particular was that we had a very young Matt Beasler on the team who at the time really hadn't taken a big stride yet. He hadn't really put himself on the map or on Peter's radar that he could be a guy that could be counted on. So when I got thrown out of this game, Beasler had to play. There was really no other option on the bench for us. So Beasler played, and he played well. To his credit, he did a good job, and obviously down to 10 men and didn't give up a goal. So fair play to him. And, and at the end of that season, I don't come back after this season. So I got, I got let go because I think they saw in this game that Beasler, who's a cheaper option than me at the time, uh, could, could do the job. And so – the really funny story about this whole thing is that by me getting this red card, it allowed Beasler to showcase what he's capable of. I'm very proud of him, of course, but it was at my expense, and that's why I got shipped out. Has so, he ever thanked you for that? Oh, I'm sure there was. He, I think he, he wrote a chapter about me in his book, which <laughs> I never thought Matt Beasler would beat me to writing a book. But I'll, he has I'll say a that. book? <laughs> yeah, he wrote a book, and there's uh, yeah, he wrote some really nice things about me. Wow. And, and I did, in fairness, and in fairness, I took him uh, under my wing. I showed him as as – older national team guys did for me back in the day. I basically brought him into this like off season stuff that I was doing. And I said, Hey, if you want to know what it looks like and tastes like and feels like to be at a national team level, what you're going to have to do to get there, let me show you what it looks like. So I brought him in and did that. And, and he took it and ran with it and made it his own at that point, just like I did when they showed me and uh, really proud of him. And I know that he brought Zussi into it as well. So very cool to see that both of those guys have succeeded and done well and really proud of them as players. So yeah, but that's just a crazy byproduct of that, that picture. Did I give you guys enough on that? Dude, did that's I elaborate crazy. Enough? <laughs> I didn't know that was like, we have to thank Jimmy Conrad for, uh, Beasler's career. Cause he was, uh, absolutely amazing for the international team when he played, honestly. Yep. I'm not necessarily look like that. All no, I did no, was that's I, what I'm saying, I, I, Jimmy. I walked him to where the water is and he <laughs> drank the water. He, he had to do everything to get there. I, I'm only claiming that I showed him a couple things that could help and, and I'm really proud of him, but yeah, I appreciate nice. the thanks, but, but it's un, unnecessary and, and it's all <laughs> on him. It's all him. That's cool. If I remember right, you guys had a pretty, maybe we'll have to pull it out of the archives for, for post-production, but a pretty classic commercial for the Wiz back in the day involving some breakfast products. If I remember right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and actually it was me Beasler who wanted waffles and I just got a, a plate of pancakes and used my cleat to make waffles for him and put it back on his thing. It was really funny, actually, a really clever idea. My favorite part was that Davey and Hercules Gomez were both in the commercial and they didn't have, they didn't say anything. It was the best. They were just like these two extras. <laughs> they knew who the stars were. Did, did yeah, Beasler yeah. need some acting uh, skills for that or is he just a natural? Uh, he's a natural okay. at looking like a deer in headlights. So I think he <laughs> nailed that, that whole look. Now he was actually pretty good, all things considered. Nice. All right. All right. Yeah, this is, this is a good one. This is a good photo. So, uh, describe what I the against Mexico. Yes, roll the clip. Can we just roll the clip? I don't even know why we have a photo. Oh, here. we can. We can do that afterwards. I'm, just, I'm sure I'm we have the. Kidding. Sure, we have the roll rights roll. to that too. Yeah. So this is a uh, an interesting photo 
for a lot of reasons. One, I'm absolutely thrilled to have scored against our biggest rival. Uh, earlier in the game, Javier Borghetti was talking, or no, Jared Borghetti, excuse me. Jared Borghetti was talking a lot of shit to me. So had I made eye contact with him, I probably would have stopped and maybe squared up with him a little bit in terms of what he got to say now, but I didn't see him. I was too excited. So I ran right past everybody and I did a celebration that I had never done before. Uh, I had never done this before. I don't even know where this comes from. Huh. I just didn't know what to, I just didn't know what to do with my hands. This is kind of like, what do I do with my hands? I'm so excited right now. But why I ran directly to Landon, it was because at halftime, I had said to him, we sat right next to each other. I said, you got to stop hitting your, your 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 set pieces to the near post. You you like you're not even bypassing. Like I run as a center back when we have a free kick or a, a corner kick. I got to run 50 yards to get up there. Yeah, not quickly, right? We can take our time to get up there. But I'm also the first one that's expected to get back. So if it's breaking the other way, it's on me to get back there. So at least give me a chance on the ball. So I have a, a you know. And he just the, his first half set pieces just weren't getting there. weren't giving me a chance at all. So this was the first set piece after the halftime when I said that to him. And I'm like, just put it in the mixer and let me have a chance. And I scored on it. So it was just really crazy. And that's why I ran to him because we had just talked about it like 10 minutes earlier. So it was a really cool feeling and obviously a big thrill. My youth coach was there in the stands. Um, you know, it's it's a big moment, obviously one that I I rely on a lot, more for jokes, I think, at this point than anything else. But But in terms of my career, it was, uh, yeah, one of those moments. I was man of the match for this one. We beat our biggest rivals, and uh, that was a big thrill. And, and yeah, something I'll never forget. I, I will. I will say if I can, if I can add on a little bit of, of meat to this, if you'd like. I know you had a follow up, so I apologize for interrupting. This is the game where Bob Bradley was the interim coach. Okay, he was interim for these. First two games, we played against Denmark first, which I was captain, and I want to continue to thank him publicly for, for giving me the opportunity to be the captain of the national team, especially a, a walk-on, undrafted MLS guy. Uh, to be captain of the national team is a big thrill. But in this game, he was still the interim, and I got into the elevator before the game with Sunil Galati and Dan Flynn, who looked nervous. Look, they just looked like we're going to get our ass kicked. And hmm. so I said to them, it's going to be fine. <laughs> We're going to be fine. You know, they, uh, no, nothing's done yet. We haven't even, the whistle hasn't blown. It's going to be good. So I don't think I got them to relax in any stretch of the imagination, but we went out there, we got the business done. We got a good result. It was a great game. It was a lot of fun. Um, and after that game, Bob got named as the full-time coach. So there was a part of me coming off the world cup, coming off of being captain in his first ever game in charge, even though he's still interim, still his first ever game in charge, this one being the man of the match and scoring the game-winning goal that I had some entitlement creep in. I really did. And I just thought that he owed me a little bit of something because I played well enough to get him the full-time job. It's a really – I say I couldn't, I couldn't express that then but I can express it a lot easier now. And it's a lot easier for me to verbalize that process, especially looking back as I fought through all this stuff. Now, Bob and I don't have the best relationship now, but I think a lot of it has to deal, do, excuse me, has to do with this initial entitlement that I thought he doesn't owe me anything. So I just want to start there. He doesn't owe me anything. 
and he never did, right? He's the national team coach. He's got to pick the best players that he thinks are going to help him get results. And, and he did well for the most part of his career. But at this point, I just thought, all right, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be one of the guys, the top guys, you know, I'm going to be somebody he relies on a lot. And then there was a little bit of a, a falling out um, during around the time when I had our first baby. And it just got a little complicated when you have a, a little one at home and you take pride and want to be a good dad. And, and I wasn't a part of that gold cup that Benny Filehaber was in. I had a calf injury or excuse me, a hamstring injury that kind of propped up. And I think it was due to a lot of stress because Bob had called me prior to the gold cup saying he wanted me to play in back-to-back tournaments in the gold cup and Copa America. And I would have been gone for eight weeks or something crazy, eight or nine weeks. And we just had a baby a month before or uh, yeah, six weeks before. And it just would have been a lot of my wife to take that on by herself. And we didn't have any family in Kansas city that, that uh, we could lean on in a really meaningful way. Cause you know, everybody takes pride in wanting to be a good parent and, and um, yeah, so that, that might've got a little bit into heavy town, but I will say that, that I don't think I, this is an amazing moment for me, but it also filled me with stuff that, that didn't really matter. I got caught up in, in energy that didn't matter as opposed to just continuing to focus on being a better, better player every single day. That, uh, I don't know if I can follow up follow that up with the question that I had that was related to this. <laughs> I was no, gonna, come back to it, Brunken. Let's make it light again. I was, uh, I was going to talk about like defenders and celebrations because like, there's no way that you can plan. Like you don't have, or do you have celebrations planned as a defender? Cause like John Brooks, when he scores his goal, he doesn't even know what to do. He's just like lifts his arms and like, what just happened? And you got this one. You didn't know what I was expecting. Like they're the most interesting, right? The defender scoring goal celebrations. I think I would I would agree with you because it's this unbridled joy. Yeah, you just really can't believe that you scored. So when John Brooks did score, and I think all of us were there for that game, yep. uh, it I, I recognized it immediately after I could kind of sift through all my own energy and excitement of us figuring out a way to beat Ghana and to exercise those demons. So that was uh, yeah, it's cool. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the ones that know they're going to score a lot, they have time. They can be a lot more methodical and and what they're going to do and the dances they're going to do and whatever. But uh, yeah, for us defenders, even if we dream about it, we don't ever really believe it's going to happen. So when it does, it's it's a nice surprise. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to to photo number three here. <laughs> we got more photos. Yeah, <laughs> it's like therapy photos. for me. <laughs> yeah. So this is Miroslav Klose, the highest scoring player in World Cup history. Big thrill to play against him and Germany at the Westfalen Stadion where Borussia Dortmund play. That was the game where we played three in the back. We played like a 3-3-3-1. So Chirondolo was ahead of me, but he was kind of in between the lines, let's say. I mean, he would really ultimately was trying to defend Philip Lom, who when you see him up close, he's a little guy, but he can play, man. That guy's good. All these guys are really good. So it was me on the right of this three, Greg Burhalter in the middle and Corey Gibbs on the left. And uh, yeah, that was, that was an intense game. It was zero, zero at half. We played okay. I didn't think we had a lot of possession in that first half, but they got booed off the field. Jurgen Klinsmann was in charge. Yogi Love was the assistant and uh, they were frustrated, but we gave up a goal minutes after the second half. And that killed us. If we had just held off and, and the fans would have got more frustrated and we could have maybe picked, you know, a couple spots to counter. 
we might have stole that game. Now, it ended 4-1, so that's kind of, kind of funny thing to say, but because we gave up a pretty cheap goal a couple minutes after halftime, it relaxed them. And once they got relaxed, we didn't have a chance. We, we just we couldn't find our way back in the game. We weren't creating enough meaningful opportunities to, to, to get a result, unfortunately. But a great learning experience. And anytime you can go up against some of the world's best players to see how they move, Michael Bollock, I changed jerseys with him after the game, uh, just to see these guys up close. I remember when we first came out, for warmups, we saw a bunch of tall guys on the other side of the field. Not a lot of them. It wasn't like the full team was out, like five or six guys. Like, man, what's the what's the German volleyball team doing out here before the game? <laughs> and it was them. Those guys are they're massive, dude. Yeah. Her murder sacker, Michael Bollock. I mean, those guys are trees. It's unreal to see how big these guys are. So so that was a, a good experience. I, I I'll say on a personal level. I was still on the bubble to make the 2006 World Cup team. This was in March. And I was dealing with uh, hernia issues. And I thought that I had to play in this game to prove to Bruce and Mooch Meyernick and Kurt Anolfo, the coaching staff, everybody, Pierre, that if I could hold my own against Germany, then that would warrant taking me to the World Cup. But I didn't play particularly well. And... Uh, I, that was the risk that I took. Brian Ching, we were also, we flew home together. And we both were like, well, that's that. <laughs> we're not going to make the team. Uh, because we just didn't feel like we stood out in this game. Not to say that the, anybody on the team did. But a week after this, after I then revealed to the coaching staff, I wasn't even telling, I didn't tell them that I was hurting. I didn't want to, I didn't want to have that work against me. But I eventually came clean and just said, I'm just, I'm dealing with this. And I immediately went to, back to Germany to get that, kind of controversial uh, hernia surgery and uh, the one where they get you back in like two weeks. And I think she clips your nerve, but I had bilateral. So I thought it was just the right side. And when they x-rayed me, they said, actually, it's both sides. And we don't do that at the same time. And I said, well, I have to have it at the same time because I don't, I can't go get one. Then two weeks later, come back and get the other one because they're going to name the team. I need to be playing in two weeks. So I was one of 5,000 people to get the, or maybe there's another guy that, um, got the double at the same time. So I was under the night. I was struggling. I was like an old man walking around. But two weeks later, I started for Kansas City. I scored the game winner against the New England Revolution. I was moving around good enough. The coaching staff, or I think Mooch was in the, in the crowd at the time, and I looked good. And so that was one of the big reasons why. I mean, I got back. I took a risk here, though. And I'll say I didn't, I didn't play great. And I remember being in the elevator with Casey Keller afterwards, and I apologized. I don't remember exactly which play I apologized for. And he was not cool about it. I mean, he was obviously disappointed and embarrassed because he played in Germany for a long time and to give up four goals and a half isn't making him feel any better. And I remember after he said something to me, I went back into my room and started crying <laughs> <laughs> because I really just thought it was over for me. I thought that that was it. And he didn't, he wasn't going to be my buddy. And I, you know what? I respect him for being given it to me straight. You know, I didn't, I didn't need my hand held, but, but yeah, that was, I just remember going back into my room and crying, I think that was it. That, that was my run. And, and I gave it everything I had and I took a risk by with this injury, but I thought that was my only chance. And thankfully it worked out anyway. Oh yeah. We have, we have to talk about this one. Well, I decided to keep the top button going, uh, despite losing my tie. So you make it look good though. I try, you know, I try, but, uh, yeah, this was an awesome day. It was a big honor for me to to be involved in such a big moment in their lives, of course, Cassie and Chris. I, I will say, I think I was a little bit more ner nervous than them. Um, 
I remember sweating profusely. It was a pretty warm day, if I remember correctly. It and, was. Um, uh, so I just wanted to make sure, I guess, the pressure I was feeling was just to make sure I didn't overdo it because my personality does go on on tangents at times, you know, and really just to really focus on them in particular while still making it fun. So I think I put maybe a little bit more pressure on myself than they were, of course, putting on me, of course. But uh, yeah, what a great day, a great night. And it was cool to be around so many people that genuinely care for each other. I think that was the, the neatest part about it. And um, happy to do it again. In some ways, I'm sad I haven't been invited to to MC anybody else's weddings or, you know, uh, be the guy that, that uh, helps tie the knot. But, uh, do you have a wedding yeah. business card for us <laughs> yeah. to give to anyone? I know. I should put that. I should put that out there. Heck so, yeah. Um, I have a great story about the end of the night. If, for those that don't know, this is a picture of my wife and I, Cassie's wedding, that Jimmy was the officiant of. And, I did. Uh, I heard you guys. This is kind of the a great a great symbol of what the of what the day meant. Um, you know, we had the the wedding; everything went great. We had the reception. Jimmy danced like uh, he's never danced before, and uh, he. I think you had, if I'm not mistaken, Jimmy, you had Heather O'Reilly was message you telling you to to come to a bar or something after the wedding, right? That's correct. So <laughs> he was trying to get us to. He was, he was saying, yeah, that. I'm going to go to this other deal, um, but then I'll meet up with you guys afterwards. And I'm like, okay, great. Well, by the time the wedding got over and we cleaned up and all that, we were, we were, uh, we were done. We were, we were exhausted. And uh, we had got – my wife and I had gone back to the hotel and just kind of winding down. I was literally taking my shoes off. It was about 11 p.m. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I, I, I hear my phone ringing. I'm like, what the hell is this? I look at my phone and it's Jimmy. And I'm like – I'm like – uh, I'm gonna make sure he's okay. So I answer it, and he's just like, "Hey, what are you doing?" And I'm like, "Hey, I just got married. Um, just, just get back to the hotel room. What's up?" Oh, nothing. I was just calling to say what's up. <laughs> Chris is like, "Let me consummate." <laughs> yeah, yeah. My timing not great there. Apparently. Cass was literally taking the, all the bobby pins out of her hair, and she's like, "What did he want?" And I was like, "I think he just wanted to talk. I don't know." <laughs> But anyway, it was a it was an awesome day for for everyone, and I think uh, I think everyone appreciated that you were there, and just not just us, but everybody that we talked to. So it, it oh, was, that means a lot. Thank you. And now you're having a baby. Congratulations. Yes, right. we are. Thank you. We so it uh, took you a while to consummate, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yep. In uh, in August, actually, the due date is about a week after our five year anniversary. So. Wow! Look at that. Yeah. yeah, and we're talking about Cody's sister, right? So that's yeah, kind of yeah. I just wanted to make sure that that was clear. Hey, yeah. Cody, what's up? <laughs> and that, that will conclude crazy. our look at this photograph. <laughs> On that note, um, so we got a lot to cover for for the podcast portion of this, Jimmy. Um, and I kind of I'm going to skip a lot. I, I know you started, you know, you walk onto UCLA. And you talk about some of the cra- I've heard a lot of stories about what you what you went through after you graduated, and you know, thinking that you're going to get drafted immediately and then not, and then training in San Diego, which is a crazy story. If if you guys haven't listened to, it. I think he talked about it on Eddie Robinson's podcast, and maybe Grant Walls as well. But um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit just just to the uh, to your first cap. Um, I believe it was in '05 in the Gold Cup against Cuba. Um, tell me, how did that come about? And what was what was the feeling going into your first cap getting called in under Bruce? Yeah, it was incredible. I would say that 
I had been trying to get on Bruce Arena's radar for so long. And anytime he looked at Kansas City, especially defensively, he was always calling in Nick Garcia. And I was oh. like, God damn it. You know, like what else? I, I mean, I, I love Nick Garcia. Um, I think I didn't like him actually when he wasn't on my team, but but I definitely came to appreciate him a lot more when he was. So I understood his value and why you'd want to call him in. But I thought I was just as good and if not if not better in some ways. You know, he's better than me at certain things, but but I thought maybe with regard to the national team setup, I could fit in a little bit better. But I would never get called in, never get called in, and I was always pretty disappointed. So 2004 comes, I end up well, we won we win the Open Cup, we get to the MLS Cup final. I'm up for defender of the year in the league. And I'm like, all right, cool. You know, I've, I've given some momentum. We had the best defense in the league. I didn't end up winning it. Robin Frazier did, bastard. And uh, I won it the following year, though, so I guess it's all good. But he, um, it, it, I thought, okay, so sorry, 04, that's when the, the Players Association for the national team was going to go on strike. And they did for a little while. Hmm. So I finally get a call from Bruce, and he goes, hey, so uh, my regular guys – you can't come in. Do you want to come in? And it's tough because he puts you in a position where you think this could be my only opportunity to be around Bruce in a meaningful way. But I was also friends with a lot of the guys that were, that were on the national team that were vital to the national team, i.e. Landon Donovan in particular. And they were making it very clear. Don't cross the line. Don't be a scab. Don't, don't do it because we all have to be in this together, whether you are a, a big part of the national team pool or will be in the future. It's really important that we stick together. So I honored that, and I told Bruce that I re- have to respectfully decline his invitation, and I hope that I get to play for him again soon because I would love that opportunity. So I left it there, talked to him on the phone, and that was that. And I thought, all right, well, there goes my national team chance. <laughs> but thankfully, Mr. Danny Califf should send him a thank you card and a big bottle of champagne. He he didn't come into camp for January because he wanted to go test his, his abilities in Europe because he's out of contract with the Galaxy, and it was a January transfer window and blah, blah, blah. So Bruce called me in. And I was like, yes, this is it. Now, Nick Garcia got called in too, right? So all I wanted to do to take the pressure off of me in this, this monumental moment in my life was to keep it as simple as possible. And all I wanted to do was to be better than Nick Garcia in every single thing that we did, every single <laughs> practice. So if there was a fitness drill, I would go to Nick Garcia's group and just try to outrun him every time. If we were doing anything passing, I would do it with Nick and try to do it better than him. If we did the beep test, I would I, I beat him. I made sure I ran next, right next to him, and I made sure I beat him every single time because I wanted them to start thinking about me when they thought of Kansas City, and not and not Nick Garcia. And so, because I had really kind of kept my goals simple, and I achieved those goals on a daily process, like on a daily basis, it really allowed me to to focus on that. And not worry about the pressure or getting overwhelmed by the moment. Just plain simple, being better than Nick. Plain simple, being better than Nick. Don't be the one that gets exposed on any goals that we give up, whatever it may be. And I kicked ass that three weeks. And I knew that if I played well for a significant amount of time, then – and I could be around the coaching staff for a three-week period like the, like the January camp provides, then maybe they could see me as somebody not – not a starter for them, I understood I wasn't going to be a starter, but maybe somebody that could come off the bench, be a good teammate if I wasn't starting. You know, all these little intangibles that don't go into some of the decision-making that you might think at an obvious level, the technical, the tactical, the physical kind of crap, right? There's all these other things too that that get uh, that coaches need to see to make final decisions. And so 
at the end of that, I got called into the the first World Cup qualifier against Trinidad in Trinidad. Now I didn't I didn't I didn't dress. They took down th- twenty three guys and only eighteen dressed. But I got to be around the locker room. I got to see what it looked like. I got to see Eddie Pope prepare for a World Cup qualifier, which was really important for me, even at the the tender age of twenty eight. At that point, <laughs> uh, you know, I was a really late bloomer in a lot of different ways. But but it was it was good, and I still have an issue. And you guys may or may not have joined in this parade. And I get why people kind of see it from the outside, but the cup, when, when they got called camp cupcake, I take big offense to that. I, I think it's super disrespectful. Uh, I don't like the fans that don't understand how valuable that camp is. It's a camp that no other national team gets. It's a camp for us to look at our depth in a meaningful way. It's a camp for, for our coaches to be around players for three weeks and to really get to understand this player and say, actually, this guy, surprised me he could maybe help us that that was me or you could look at somebody and be like actually now that i have three weeks with this guy he's not as good as i thought and there's a lot of those guys i can name as well it's such a valuable camp for it to be dismissed as something that doesn't matter is just is insane to me i remember and, and i, I, I want to i remember asking you that i remember i think i had a phone call with you and i asked that question and i remember i've never seen you uh that serious about something or heard you that serious about something i was like Ush. Man, we are uh, in trouble, but you make, you're so correct. And even after that phone call is like, even if we weren't calling it that, we've like made sure that no one else like was, because you make such a good point. And, you know, one of the reasons why we want to talk to, you know, players like you so that we, we have that uh, idea of what that's about and what it means to you guys. So. And also, and also one other layer too, and I'm sure I brought this up and yeah, I do get serious at times. I definitely have a switch. They used to call me crazy <laughs> eyes, but, but one of the, I, I get, I get a little crazy sometimes, but they, you're also dismissing people that have worked their whole life to get to that point that have put everything into it to finally get that sniff, to finally get looked at whether they, they deserve it based on whatever your, you know, parameters are okay, whatever, but they finally got their opportunity. And then it's up to them to make it. It's up to them to prove to the coaching staff that they deserve a look when it matters. Okay, I understand that you're not playing games that really matter, but man, it is such an important thing and something that we have an advantage on over all the other national teams. Because if I had been called in like three days before a World Cup qualifier, nobody's trying that hard in practice. I can't beat the Nick Garcias that are in front of me in those types of trainings. The coaches aren't looking at those very seriously. They just want to make sure nobody gets hurt. So you know, it just would have been a lot harder to make the team that way. So anyway, to get to your question about, <laughs> about the first cap, that was kind of my camp leading up to it. And I got called into the qualifiers before I didn't play, but I was around the team. I was starting to become trusted, not only by the coaching staff, but by, but by the players. And I knew too, that there was nothing ability wise that I was going to wow anybody, but where I think I could elevate was by communicating and putting guys in good spots to make plays. And so that was a big thing to go into camp and be, Bossy Mas, Pablo Mastriani around and Eddie Pope around and Claudio Reyna when I had a, a chance to be around him. That's not easy to do. You have to kind of go above and beyond yourself because you really don't want to yell at those guys. However, I knew that if I was going to make the team, those guys needed to trust me in really high level and high pressure situations. And I had to build that trust and that rapport in any practice or meaningless games that I had an opportunity to do so because if I put them in good spots to make plays and ultimately if they ever bitched at me about whatever, 
I'd say, hey, listen, I'm just trying to make your job easier. I want you to do less running. That's it, you know? And so once you start to build that type of relationship, it changed a lot. So then when I did get an opportunity to play in big games and got to play in a World Cup, there was no drop-off because everybody knew that I was acting in the best interest of the team and for them and always give everything that I had every time I stepped on the field. You talked about kind of having that underdog role as a player in terms of the team and then going into the World Cup, um, you didn't think that you were going to make the World Cup squad. If Correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you thought it was an outside shot and um, you get the call, you go to the World Cup. I just watched an interview with you today about um, – before the, the Ghana game, actually, and you're, you know, you get named in the starting 11. What did, what was that whole experience like from coming kind of from the outside looking in and then all of a sudden just being in the thick of it and then automatically being an integral part of the team? Yeah, pretty surreal. I'll start there. And I guess that kind of ties into finally answering your first question about my first cap where it's, it, I was very nervous. You know, you, you, these are the games that people remember. These are the games that you're going to remember, uh, the things that matter to you. And, and uh, that first cap in particular, I, I was shaking. Like I couldn't stop shaking. I was so nervous. I didn't know what to say to anybody. I didn't know how to be a leader. I, you start to, you have to figure out a way to get out of your own way and just play, right? And when the whistle blows, then you start to feel more relaxed. And I think what I learned about playing with the national team is that everybody's so good at their job. It's actually easier to play with the national team than it is with your club team at times because, the club level, not to say that there's that much of a drop-off, but if there's one weak link or two weak links, everybody's kind of covering for each other, and you're never really maybe playing to the potential that you you should or could have. But when you play at the national team, everybody's so good that it, it I think it makes the game easier. So I always appreciated that. So when the game actually started, it wasn't too bad. It was more just about just doing my job as well as I possibly could. And I just carried over that that type of mentality into the world cup because once I did make it and that was a big thrill for me, there's like a month there before you actually start the world cup, you know, or maybe six weeks. And you have that three weeks before we go into the pre world cup camp. And once you're about two weeks into that and you're running your ass off and you're super tired and you're sore all the time and everybody's just going a hundred miles an hour to try to make sure they're in the starting 11 or whatever it may be, you start to think, all right, Making the World Cup team is pretty cool, but it'd actually be even cooler if I got to play in a World Cup, right? So it's funny how your mindset changes as you start to get a little bit more comfortable with your surroundings. Not that I ever felt comfortable because I always felt a little bit like an outsider. Uh, do, I, do I deserve to be here? Is this, is this right? You know, but, but I was ready and I made sure I was prepared mentally and physically. No matter when they called me in any situation, I was always ready to go. I will say, though. When I got to play against Italy, I came in right away. Eddie Pope got that red card. I didn't have time to think. Yeah. They just told me I was going in. I couldn't believe I, they told me that. And I didn't even need to warm up, dude. I went from zero to 1,000 at that point. Um, but I did a couple runs just to please them, put my shin guards on, got my instructions, and, and went out there. And I had no time to be nervous. I had no time to really think about anything other than, all right, we're down a man. We're tied 1-1 against a really good, really good team. Uh, how are we going to maintain this? And uh, I was really proud of how I played. But we have five days until the next game, and I knew that I would probably start that game based on the performance I had against Italy and just kind of how things were shaping up in general. Like I was going to be the first defender off the bench or center back at least. So Eddie Pope couldn't play that last game. I had some of my worst practices leading up to that Ghana game because I was so nervous. I wasn't, I wasn't sharp. 
the coaches pull me aside and basically ask me, are you okay? <laughs> Which oh, is never a good, good sign, <laughs> you know? So, uh, so that's where I was mentally. I just had gotten into my own head. I was worried about how I was going to perform. You know, I was watching a ton of video on Ghana to see what they were trying to do. And I was overthinking for sure. But I knew when the whistle blew that it really comes down to whether you're ready when that whistle blows or not. And you can play in Europe. You can have this really extensive career decorated. But if you're not ready when the whistle blows at that moment, then you're not ready. It doesn't matter what your experience is. And so I just made sure I was ready when the whistle blew. And uh, the Ghana game was tough. It was hot that day in Nuremberg. Um, you know, we just got a little unlucky. I will say that that penalty kick against us right before halftime, it's, it's, it's one of the biggest. <laughs> I know, calls. I know. Dude, I'm not even trying to speak. It's it's a really big bullshit call. And one of my goals, I think, as a media member, and maybe I'll, I'll get to it at some point, is to interview that referee. Because uh, I just I just don't know how he could possibly call that. Sure, Carlos Bocanegra could have cleared the ball out of bounds. He headed it back in the middle. We have we have plenty of things we can dissect uh, prior to it getting to that point. But I just feel like he was looking to make a call. They, it was really important for them to get an African nation in the knockout rounds because Africa was hosting the next World Cup. Um, that's what I think. That's what I'm going to say about it. That might be scandalous at this point, but There's... that call was so shady, dude. It was so shady. I still can't believe they called the penalty. It was just a size difference thing. The ball was, it was like an innocuous ball. Had he not called it, they never in a million years would have asked for a penalty there. That's how bad it was. Ghana never, Ghana wouldn't have asked for a penalty there. Yeah. It's just, it's. Uh, like think about, like think about, uh, like there's a lot of people hate and most people hate VAR, but like there's some moments in U.S. soccer history that would have changed completely because of VAR. That would, could sure. have been one of them, the Germany game in 2002. And it's, it's crazy to think about. Like oh, the VA, yeah, VAR would have changed those outcomes drastically because so he would have let the play go. Did you – I don't know if the players felt this, but from a, a fan's perspective at the game, that, that PK call was right before halftime. We had we – had, I feel like – the U.S. had started to get momentum. And then I don't know if you guys feel this, but it felt like the it just felt deflated inside the stadium after that PK call. And it just felt it felt like at that point the world was against us and it just wasn't going to happen for us. <laughs> yeah, I guess I could concur with those sentiments. It was so shocking. Not, I guess, a lot of things, right? You never want to give up a goal right before halftime because it just kind of changes what you were going to say and the energy you were going to have. And I don't think anybody knew what to say in the locker room. I mean, even the great Frankie Hayda, you know, who's like energy plus who actually wasn't with us. Cause he was, he was in the stands cause he was hurt. But, but, but me, who's usually pretty boisterous, you know, anybody else that has that type of personality, we just didn't know what to say. If Bruce didn't know what to say, like there was nothing I mean, outside of the standard stuff that you would expect in that situation. We come on, we can still do it. That type of stuff. It just, it felt like we had done a lot. We had, we had regained some respect in the Italy game after getting blown out by Czech Republic. So we, we had, we've earned that. Then we went down a goal. We fought back in a really meaningful way. Clint scores a really good goal. And that momentum was something we needed to carry us into the second half. And, and yes, that was a big kick to the balls. And I just don't think we had what we needed to, to fight our way out of that. You have to be proud to play in that Italy game. I remember watching that World Cup and like 
the the grittiness of the team and how you guys played. I mean, that's one of the most memorable games, at least in my lifetime with U.S. soccer. It, it was the best atmosphere of any U.S. game I've ever, I've ever been to. Yeah, I mean, I get goosebumps actually just thinking about it because before we left, Clive Charles, one of the – well, he should be one of the more famous coaches here in this country, but he sent a note to all of us saying, if you have a chance and you get to step on the field for a World Cup game, just take a moment to – the ball goes out of bounds, sniff the grass, look at the crowd, absorb the lights, just the magnitude of it all. And just, just enjoy it, you know? And so I did that when I stepped on the field, I remembered it and I did it. And now I can feel it. It's so vivid for me. So when you guys bring it up in that way, it's uh, it's pretty cool. And I would say that game in particular really played to my personality and to my strengths, which is grittiness, scrappiness, hard on your sleeve performance, you know, like making plays, giving high fives to guys, you know, I, I, I kind of liken it to March Madness. So there's all the college kids just barreling around trying to figure out ways to make plays and win games. And so it really played to, to my strengths. And so I appreciated that being my first minutes for uh, in, in a world cup. I will say I was also warming up for the Czech game and it, he had made two subs, Eddie Johnson and John O'Brien came on at halftime and there was one more sub left and it was me, Josh Wolf and Clint Dempsey. We're all running down the sideline and I, you know, I've known Wolfie forever and uh, he's my roommate. And I'm kind of running. And Czech Republic's just there kicking our ass. And I'm like, I don't know if I want this to be my first World Cup game. I don't know if this is the one. You know, I, I, you know we, got two, we got two other games. Maybe I can slide into those. This one, this one's a little rough, you know. Um, it was pretty funny. But Wolfie ended up going in. And uh, that was the only game he ended up playing. But, yeah, it was <laughs> – I'm glad it worked out the way it did. I, it was an incredible experience. And, and – especially for all the hard work that nobody saw behind the scenes and you know, for not being drafted and being a walk on and going through that whole process and being able to then represent my country. And, and I would like to think made the country proud of how we performed in that game in particular against Italy. And just how I performed uh, was, was really important for a lot of people that helped supported me along the way. So you, you definitely make your name at on the international level at the world cup. And then, you know, next summer you guys go to – you get named to the Copa America squad, um, have a little bit of an indifferent experience down there with that. Um, but I, by all accounts, a great experience for you personally and for the team. Um, Fast-forwarding a little bit to qualifying in 09, did you – were you thinking – I remember watching those – kind of those last games um, in D.C., away at Honduras. I remember seeing the celebrations with you guys after qualifying – were you thinking, I'm going to get another shot at this in, in 2010? <laughs> I had no idea. Um, that, that was a nice lead-in because uh, you, you, you conveniently skipped about 18 months when I wasn't called into the team. <laughs> um, and, and a lot of it stemmed from after that Copa America. I, I, didn't, I didn't play particularly well. The team didn't play particularly well. I was a little bit, as I alluded to earlier, you know, I had, was away from home um, from my young family. I was having a tough time with that. Um, that that's on me. It's not on anybody else, you know, how I perform and how you deal with that, but they don't really give you a handbook on how to deal with, Hey, by the way, you had a new baby. There's one thing. And also, uh, on the other hand, you also have to prepare for Messi and maybe the greatest Argentina team of all time and how you find that balance. It's, it's, uh, I, I uh, respect the guys who can figure out how to make that work, but especially your first kid. So that um, was a challenge, and, and Bob and I's relationship just didn't go well after that. And I think that's where my entitlement s- 
started to you know seep into my game. I just assumed I'd be called in all the time, no matter how I performed, because it seemed like other guys that had, had my experience were starting to get that that benefit in some ways. And then the next friendly after that was against Brazil and Chicago, I think. And I thought, oh man, I'm gonna get to play against Brazil, and I didn't get, get I didn't get called in. So then, ah, it was just. And then I didn't get called in for 18 months. And, and uh, I just assumed my career was dead at that point. So after those qualifiers that you mentioned, we had a couple of friendlies in Slovakia and Denmark, which is at the end of 09. And uh, Bob had a meeting with a, each player. So we sit down and he goes, you got a 50-50 chance to, to make the 2010 World Cup team. And I was like... 50 50 I'll, ta- I'll <laughs> take that. Good. I thought it was going to be like 20 80. You know, I didn't, I didn't even realize we we're getting numbers. I didn't know what was <laughs> that happening is, there. Was that is weird. Percentage. Yeah. But, but yeah, so he gave me a 50 50 shout and I was pleasantly surprised. And I looked at him like, I'll take it, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I got called into January camp, 2010. I uh, thought I had a good camp. I was captain for that first game against uh, Honduras. And I got two yellow cards in 15 minutes, got a red card and never played for the national team again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least I went out in the blaze of glory, boys. You know what I mean? If you're going to go out, you got to go out in style. And it was, it was in LA. The game was in LA where I'm from. And I had like a hundred people there to support me. And then within 15 (laughs) minutes, it was all done and dusted. And yeah, I thought that referee had it out for me a little bit. And and he had had it out for me before. um, What was the second yellow? It It was was, two very soft yellows. I want to point out. I remember it. Yeah, they were soft yellows. The first one was a corner kick that we had, and uh, they countered us. Like the ball just got cleared, and the guy that got it, he he had a good first touch. I was just trying to get back on the play. He runs across my path. I can see what he's trying to do, so I slow up and put my hands up, and he falls down, and the referee gives me a yellow card. Four minutes into the game, I'm I'm like, are you? I'm first of all, I'm the captain. Usually, you give a little bit of leeway to the captain, and we're four minutes into the game, and you're giving me a yellow for that play. We're we're 65, 70 yards away from goal. He's not wow. even over the half line. It's not like he's on a full break. There were plenty of numbers there for us. It was going to slow down, so I get a yellow there, and then the second one, ten minutes later, he had already given a yellow to one of their players for diving. Okay, so just keep that in mind when I tell this story. My guy's on top of the box, or up 10 yards off the top of the box. He plays it wide, and they're going to get across him. So I see that my guy's not really making a run. Chad Marshall, who's my other center back, his guy – now Chad's kind of looking at the ball and his runner at the same time, but his runner makes a pretty good run off of his shoulder. So I'm starting to get back in the play. And as that guy runs across me, the guy that dove and got a yellow card earlier, I just kind of slow him down by just kind of grazing him with an arm. Okay? Yeah. Whatever. I didn't need to do it. But, but I did it just, just because I'm competitive. So <laughs> that's probably the best way to say it. The guy falls, okay? Very theatrically, as, I might add. As he falls, the cross goes into the stands. <laughs> the cross goes into the stands. It's not like it, it got whipped into where he was going to be, where the run was, or anything like that. It goes into the stands. There's, there's three or four of our other defenders. Like, I, I had kind of stepped out. To, to approach my guy and the other guys pinch. We, we had plenty of defenders. I get a second yellow. I get thrown out of the game. They get a penalty. We lose three, one. I mean, it's unreal, dude. It is another referee. I'd like to go talk to oh. an interview. Cause I think that guy had a vendetta against Let's me. Cause he gave me a up these referees for uh, Jimmy. Yeah, I think we found your new series. Yeah. Dude, I just, I can't, I knew, I knew he didn't like me cause there was a game uh, with the U S the gold cup in 09. And I got my concussion. 
And um, I was captain for that one. And he just, he didn't like it. You know, when you get a vibe from somebody, he just didn't like me. I think it was because either I was too jokey for him. Cause I'd always try to be really nice to the referees um, or whatever. He just wasn't buying what I was selling and fair enough. Right. But, <laughs> but he, he really took that power and anytime he was refereeing me, you know, I either got hurt or got yellow cards, got thrown out, you know, that said after the game, I, I didn't know what to make of it. Like Bob is so stone-faced. I, I don't know whether he's going to be cool or upset. I have no idea. So you try to like guess. Uh, I think that's part of the mind games that he likes to see if you're huh. tough enough to handle adversity or whatever. So I feel like I've been pretty tough, but with him, I never really felt comfortable and never felt like one of his guys. So afterwards, I just I kept apologizing, like, hey, I'm so sorry. You know, obviously, when we went down a man, we got overrun, and it sucked. It just sucked. And uh, once I started to get back into the team, back into MLS, I was still on the bubble. And then I, t- I pulled my calf in Seattle against the Sounders, and it was just really bad timing. And again, I, I wasn't a big muscle puller guy. It just seemed to happen when I was really stressed out. And uh, I just think I was stressed. I think I just think, I don't know. I never felt comfortable. Uh, always playing for Bob. There were some times I did early on, but but as time went on, uh, it didn't feel as much. That said, and I want to make sure this is really clear for everybody listening, Bob gave me more than enough opportunities to make that team and to prove myself, and I don't think I made the most of them. I don't think um, – I felt really comfortable under Bruce, you know, but but with Bob, I didn't, I didn't get the same vibe. So – and that really worked against me, and I worked against myself there. So I just want to add that in. So – 2009, you you go out with a bang, as you say, um, from the national team. I'm I'm curious from a, a personal fan perspective. You know, when you hung up the boots in in 2011, um, we can get to that. But what are some of the the major differences that you see from a, a personal player perspective, whether it's boot deals, jersey deals, player accommodations, travel that you notice? Um, from the time you, you stopped playing in 11 from the time you started? I think, in, what, 90, 98? I started, yeah, San Diego Flash uh, in the A-League was my, yeah, yes. was my year. I've been, yeah, I, was, I played for 13 years. That was my favorite year. But I'll say that, can I say all of the above, actually? Everything you mentioned has gotten a lot better. I remember kind of being out of when I retired, going to do the media stuff and not really paying as much attention to the salaries. And then all of a sudden I caught wind of what Beasler was making with Kansas city. I was like, what? I mean, that was like my whole career. He's making it yeah. one year. You know, I was like, thanks what? to you, Jimmy. We already went over this. Yeah. yeah. No, no. And, and it, but I mean, I was just using him as an example because you know, he's Kansas city defender and, and we essentially achieved the same things. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of him. Like I don't, I'm not one of those guys that's bitter that the, the, the next generation is making more money and, more pop. I don't, I don't, that doesn't, I, I want that. That's what it should be. Right. That's, that's the expectation. And as somebody that worked on the players union and was part of the executive committee and, and was trying to get these things put in place to make sure that the players were treated better in a lot of different ways. Uh, yeah, that's important to me. I wanted to, that's the trend I want, but I was still like, what, what? That's crazy money, dude, for it. I want that, you know, so you have a little <laughs> bit of that and then you just, you just move on because I'm just focusing on what I'm doing next. I mean, so, so yeah, that's what I would say. But I mean, when you look at the training facilities, I was kind of at the, when those are starting to become fashionable, uh, which you would think seem like they should just be there. That's when they were starting to happen or around the league. 
So the first one that Kansas City had, that's when you guys came down, actually, and checked it out when the, yep. the outlaws came down. The limo, we, we had a nice, by the way. Yeah. That was incredible. That was, Be nice to Corey Day. <laughs> Amazing. We, so don't, that we was, don't invite him on the podcast anymore. That's how nice we are to him. Yeah, yeah. That's that's fair. I get it. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's great. I think where my worry is, my only concern is just the entitlement that comes with it. Um, because sometimes I feel like – and I don't mean that in a bad way. I think – if you've earned a certain amount of respect, there's there's just going to be a natural entitlement there. But I, I think the mentality of never stopping to try to get better, like you always got to keep pushing. That's the only way you're going to continue to to scale. I think the hard part for me, just pulling it back a little bit more, was I was always the guy that was climbing. I was always trying to catch somebody else. And then I finally got there. And I had a really hard time with how do, how do I maintain being up here? I don't, I don't know. I've never been that guy. I, I don't know. Everybody's gunning for me. That's a really different feeling for me. And I didn't know how to, to handle that. But the approach should have been just keep, keep trying to go after the best defender in the world. It doesn't have to be the best American defender. Just keep trying to push. And that's where I think I lost my way a little bit uh, with regard to my own personal development uh, as a player. But um, I would say... I'm glad everything is where it is. I'm glad that it's continuing to push in the right direction. And I just hope that the, the guys that do come through don't think that they've quote unquote made it uh, once they get there, because there's still a long way to go to, to get on the national team and then to be an actual contributor to that team as well. Just be better than Nick. Be better than Nick. <laughs> that's what you're going to pass I, down to your kids. It. I think I, too. be better than Nick. Who's Nick. I don't know. It's just a right. motto. That's Love that's it. that's a really great. Uh, yeah, I should put that on uh, Love it. a T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, some of the other things that I I think that I kind of want to touch on, but we could talk about this all night. Um, you've talked about very publicly about how your feelings with Jurgen have gone. <laughs> I I'm start more, laughing right away. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm more curious. Um, what, what are your thoughts? Cause I think you played with Greg Berhalter. Um, mm -hmm. how would you compare these different coaching styles between Peter and obviously you played with Peter, but, um, I'm sure you I didn't, I did not play with Peter. I only played against him and then he was my you coach didn't play with him when you first started. At, at no, I, so I was the replacement for Peter. Okay. That's why I don't think he ever really liked me deep down. Got I it. think we're, we're cool now. It is what it is, but Obviously, I guess I'm just curious about what you, your experience with Bob and the opportunities he gave you. Why do you pick on Jurgen from a former player's <laughs> perspective when, when we had quite a bit of success under, under Jurgen and Bob? Um, Jurgen's always an easy target, but why, I guess, what's your overall theme with, with Jurgen now that he's gone? I know you were very public about your disapproval with him while he was a coach. What are your thoughts now that he's gone? Yeah, there's a lot of questions in this one, uh, Chris. So I'll just pick what I want to answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So with regard to Bob in particular, that was that's more personal between him and I. I think that that's uh, you know I got to see him as a coach. I used to I used to take a ton of notes uh, on him and his style. The same I would do with Bruce and the same that I would do with Bob Gansler and Ziggy Schmidt and all the other great coaches I got to be around, Peter Vermes included. Um, 
and you just take little bits and pieces and you see how they motivate and what they say and, and where are they tactically and, and when they say what they say and at what point is it at halftime? Is it before the game? Is it afterwards? How they comfort people if they don't comfort anybody. So there's a lot of different things that I'm taking cues on and, and watching and paying attention to. Now I didn't get to play for Jurgen, So I kind of saw that as me being more of a fan for the first time ever. I could sit there and bitch like a fan, you know, and that was, pretty neat. But I also had insight from some of the players that were in the team still. So I don't know if that necessarily helps. I think it gave me more fuel that he did a lot of just, just roll the ball out there and, and hope for the best. I, I, I guess my expectations for him were too high. I thought, Hey, we got this world cup winner played striker. He's going to make everybody better. He's going to, he's going to be demanding, which I think he was in his way. I do like that. He broadened the player pool. I know there's a lot of people maybe in the AO family that don't like that per se, I'm all for it. If we're going to go recruit around the world to find some American internationals that, that qualify and it helps the team, why wouldn't we do that? That's one. Secondly, if you don't like it and you, you're, you live here, then just play better, right? Be better than Nick, right? That's be better right. than the, the <laughs> be foreign American international. Nick. I mean, it's not hard. Just play better. You can sit there and bitch. You can complain or whatever. Just play better. That, I mean, that's, so I don't mind that. I, I like the competition. So, so that didn't, that didn't phase me. I like that. What I really liked about Jurgen is at that time, Sunil Gulati, the president, I just thought he had a lot of control and was pretty heavy handed and, and Jurgen, cause he wanted Jurgen so bad. I knew would maybe help him open up and, and let a soccer person, let's say, come in and, and make soccer decisions as it were. And, and I thought that Jurgen did that as well. I thought he, he, he provided some insight that maybe wouldn't have existed otherwise or wouldn't have been allowed to exist because I think those other coaches know just as much as Jurgen does. Uh, but because he's Jurgen, you know, he's going to be able to voice his concerns a little bit more and he's going to challenge people in a way. And I think he understood that. And sometimes I don't think he always picked his spots in the right way. I think he just got a little careless in some ways, maybe didn't want to play the game, the politics. Every, every federation has some politics. Every club has their politics. He learned that the hard way with Hertz of Berlin when he was trying to throw his weight around. They're like, you know, we don't give a shit if you're in Klinsman. This isn't what's right for our club. You're out, you know. So uh, I think that experience has validated me in some ways, seeing him kind of torch and, and blow up bridges uh, and all of his goodwill that he's created. When you read about stuff uh, and when I heard from players from Bayern Munich about how he ran that team, you just everything was starting to add up as him being a bit of a clown. Um, that's probably a really harsh way of saying it. But once I got insight from people that owed their whole national team careers from to him, you know, they, they, and I just said, Hey, you know, is this guy a clown? And they're like, yeah, he's a clown. You just, so I'm like, great. You know, this is, that was already my vibe. I had already was already picked up on it way early. I had talked to certain people at us soccer you know, you get bits and pieces from all these different areas. And that was what started to populate and, and create my opinion on him, which I was already getting that vibe about him. And so that just gave me fuel to continue to push. That said, you make a good point. We go and we win these games. Uh, we, we, we play Holland and Holland. We beat them 3-2. You know, we're holding our own against some of the best teams in the world. And mind you, most of them friendlies. But, uh, you know, we were competing in a way that I don't think we are right now. And I think that's why maybe Jurgen looks a little bit better, but I don't know. We didn't call under his watch as technical director. We didn't qualify for two Olympics in a row. We might struggle to qualify for a third. 
uh, the generation of players that were under his watch haven't really panned out. There's a big gap between the Michael Bradley generation and now the next one, the Christian Pulisic. There's that big study I'm sure you guys saw where birth years from like 90 to 95, like uh, every birth year from, from like 70 to 90, there's like two or three guys born every year that have, were like major contributors to the national team. And then from 90 to 95, there's one. And I think it's Jordan Morris, maybe Aaron Long fits in there now. And then from 95 on, now we have the, the next generation of guys. So what happened there? I don't think that's all on Jurgen, but, but, you know, he's still hiring the coaches. He's still putting the methodology in place. He's, he's, he's claiming vertical integration and all this crap. And, uh, and I understand all the buzzwords and I appreciate the, the, the ideology and the, and the ide- idealism, but I don't think it was executed very well. I just think he, he uses big words to throw them around and I just called him out pretty early. He didn't like that. He didn't like me. Um, so did you get blacklisted from a U.S. soccer press conference one time, or did, am I dreaming? I don't know if it was blacklisted. I just think they weren't going to call on me anyway. So it got to the point where I would go to press conferences and they wouldn't call on me. And so we had conversations behind the scenes where I said, listen, man, have I ever made a video that or done anything on social media that's painting U.S. soccer in a bad light? More often than not, I'm trying to have fun at the game with the fans. I mean, that was really the crux of it. I said, if you want me to go in there and you want me to be a proper journalist, I will ask the hardest questions of these coaches. I will grill them. Like, I, I don't think you want that serious version of me that Justin brought up earlier. You'd rather have me be lighthearted and fun and just having a good time. And so most of my questions were pretty ridiculous. Um, and always in an effort to, to keep things light because it's just a bunch of grown men or grown women in small shorts kicking a ball in a certain direction, right? So... But yeah, so I mean, there's there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there. I think Jurgen has shown his true colors since then. You know, I think you know there's one of my favorite things of his, and I called him out on it one time. Was that anytime we lost, the next day there'd be this PR spin. Jurgen Klinsmann is you know Tottenham wants to hire Jurgen Klinsmann. <laughs> it was so I mean it got to the point where it was so obvious that we lost. I would just start to wait for when the the the, the media thing would come out, the press release. You know, because he just had so many people in the media, they could plant this type of stuff to, to continue to, to prove his worth. Huh. Also, I did, you know, let's talk about the World Cup, though. I mean, we, I, I did an interview with him. I asked him a would you rather. You guys got to, well, they, I think they unlisted these videos now, unfortunately. But I asked him a would you rather. Jurgen, would you rather, this is ahead of the 2014 World Cup, would you rather get out of our group but we play to our stereotypes, right? We sit on the counter, we hit them on set pieces, that type of stuff. But, you know, we advance. Or would you rather us play exceptionally well? Everybody can see around the world that we are making progress, and but we just were a little bit unlucky and didn't get through our group. And I thought, based on all the promises he said and the attacking soccer we wanted to play and all these things that he promised, I thought maybe he would go with us making progress. Like, that's what... That's where we should be thinking about and getting, because we're not, we're not going to win a world cup anytime soon. Right. Or at least we weren't at that point. And that's the reality of it. So can we start putting the seeds in place where we can be competitive, but also start to play a brand where we have a little bit more of an identity than these, these stereotypes that I said and blah, 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 blah. He said he'd rather get out of the group and play to the stereotypes and sitting right next to him was Sunil and Sunil could not wait to just jump on me. He he was like, I mean, he was physically waiting for his turn to speak. So after Jurgen finished, Sunil just like, whoa, so beating Portugal in the 2002 World Cup was playing to our stereotypes? And he just whipped me a new one. And I was so caught off guard, I didn't know how to respond. But in the video, I kind of 
I, I'm like kind of throw it to myself as a sideline reporter. And I just start making fun of myself for not having an answer. But ultimately, I said stereotypes for a reason, because, no, there are obviously plenty of examples where we go toe to toe with some of the world's best, you know, teams. But but it was crazy. Sunil jumped on me hard because he knew what I was trying to get at. And and when we go to the World Cup in 2014, I mean, we essentially played our stereotypes. It's hilarious. But but we I mean, Ghana, I was there at that game. An amazing result. Did we deserve to win two to one on the balance of the game? If you look at it in terms of shots created and chances created. No, we did not deserve to win that game, but we'll take it 1000%. And yeah. in some ways we feel like we're owed it because Ghana knocked us out of the last two world cups. So yeah, we don't give a shit. Right. And then you have the Germany game, no Portugal game, which I think a tie was a, probably a pretty fair result. Great goals. We shouldn't have given up that one at the end. So we, I think we feel hard done by, but if you look again, if you look at the balance of the game, a draw, I thought was a fair result. And that was our best game, by the way, we had like an excellent, like 60 minutes, I thought we were excellent that game. And then against Germany, that we, I mean, I, if we connected five passes in a row against Germany in that last group game, I would be surprised because I don't even know if we got over midfield. Yeah, it was 1-0, but it wasn't that close. Right. And then we go against Belgium and we give up more shots on goal than any other team in World Cup history. Mm-hmm. And where my big issue was, and this is where I think if you had a coach that actually knew what they were doing, this would never happen. But the big reason for me, and maybe Belgium would have won anyway, but Kyle Beckerman, no matter what you think of him, is very good at his job. And when you're playing at the World Cup level and you have three World Cup games as a center back in particular, I'm only looking at it now right through the lens of a center back. You have a defensive midfielder that you've been with in the trenches now for three straight games and you understand how he moves and how he's going to block passing lanes and how he's going to support the play when you're under a little bit of pressure. And all these little things you can't replicate in training. You can't replicate in Gold Cup games or World Cup qualifiers, but World Cup games. You had three straight games in a row with this guy in different situations where you were down a goal, where you were up a goal, all these different things. You've now built that rapport and trust with that player. (laughs) Jurgen Klinsmann takes him out of the team against Belgium because this was his reasoning. He said publicly, Jeff Cameron played against Fellaini a few times in the Premier League. Like, I just don't. I just don't understand. So what happens? Well, the passing lanes are all over the place. Yeah. Listen, I think Jeff Cameron's a fantastic player. Um, I, 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 his, his, his instincts aren't the same as Kyle Beckerman's instincts. Jeff always loved to go forward. He loved to join the attack. He's not going to sit in the hole and just be disciplined to sit there. That's not his game. So I don't blame Jeff Cameron at all. I blame Jurgen Klinsmann for making that change. Now your center backs, what you're used to and where the space is. And I, no wonder we were a sieve. Like, Everybody was running through us. No wonder we gave up more shots than any other team. We just yep. and, and Belgium was probably one of the more talented teams we, we ran into. But still, like, I just can't believe a coach of, quote unquote, Jurgen's caliber would, would ever make a change like that without understanding how important that little thing is to the rest of the team and how the, that dynamic. But but, uh, you well, know, and then, of course, Julian Green comes and scores on his first touch. Like what? Yeah. You know, which valid, <laughs> validates that decision. And and we had given Jurgen the, cl- the cl- contract before the tournament so he could not take Landon Donovan amongst some of the other decisions he made. And but now we're to oh, a but now we're to I'm a coaching sure. staff that's uh, the opposite. Right. They want to create the style and brand before results. Yeah. So that uh, leads me to a different conversation. Uh, I played with great. Great Chris, I'm taking over. I don't know how long you want to go. No, this could uh, this could uh, go for another 30 minutes. No, 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 no. I'll, I'll be. I'll try to be as as brief as I can. I'm trying to give you guys some meat. It's a podcast. No, this is great. great. No, this great. is fantastic. I'll go so, so, another hour as long as I I don't have another beer though. <laughs> yeah. 
So, so Burhalter for me is a player that I wanted his respect, right? He, he has this aura about him where, you know, he has a very good and clear idea of how the game should be played. I don't know if I ever fit that bill for him. We weren't the same type of player, but I feel like there's a role and a space for my type of player to be in there and, and him as well. I think we could be a good partnership. I only remember playing with him once. It was in that Germany game. It didn't go particularly well that game. And uh, we were both competing for that, you know, one of the center back spots for the World Cup. So it's kind of weird when you're competing against somebody and you, you, you need to play better than them, but you also need to play, have him play well because then you both look better. It's, it's, it's kind of a weird spot to be in. Um, but that aside, I always knew that he was going to be a good coach because he was so clear in his communication and he knew exactly what he, he wanted. My only concern with regard to this and us trying to play a certain style, it's, it's for me, if the guys are on the national team and they're not capable of the style that you want, they're probably not going to get there. I feel like this is the stuff you work on with our U15 national teams. Hmm. You start to build it there. You plant the seeds there. And then that will blossom into what you want to see. But to try to do it, I was at that game in New York against Mexico where we lost 3-0. I mean, it's, I, it's tough for me because I don't know. I don't, I'm not in the locker room. I, I, I know Greg well enough, and I know the assistant coaches well enough, Josh Wolf in particular. I, I understand how they see the game. What I wonder is, because we were so adamant to continue to play out of situations that weren't on, at what point is the next logical play just to lump it out of pressure so we can just get out of our half and then play from there. I got a question. Um, I think in watching some videos back, like Chris was talking about pregame before you go into the, going back to the 2006 World Cup and seeing the kind of group of guys that were there and the way that you guys carry themselves, you talked about yourself being kind of a gritty player and a hard-nosed player. Um, and that was the way that we played then and, and up and through Bob Bradley. And it fit who we had and the identity of the players that we had. And, and the identity, I think, around culture on the sport in general. Do you think now we're kind of in a, an identity crisis almost where maybe we think we're, we're above that in some way or we shouldn't be that. And so we're trying to pick players that, that aren't that, or, or, you know, what kind it seems like there was a transition or transitionary period and something didn't really get connected there. When did Cody become a real journalist? When did that? When did <laughs> Love we, it. Uh... Love it. I do have a journalism degree. <laughs> Jesus. So, yeah. Around 2014. <laughs> wow. That was a big, that was a big question. I love it. I, I think that there is a somewhat of an identity crisis, whether it's the players or whether it's the evolution of us soccer and the coaching staff who have a lot of playing experience themselves and have played in world cups and have seen what it looks like and, and see what the best players in the world, how they train, what they look like, all that stuff, the methodology that, that Claudia Reyna put in place when he came back from you know his time playing as well and, and really building kind of a manual for what it should look like for developing players, but then also moving forward. Uh, all this experience, I think, has lent itself to us feeling like we should be playing at a more sophisticated level. Whereas I don't want us to lose that grit. You know, that's what that's what makes us a little bit special. That was the thing that when I hear from players from other countries, they hated playing against us because they knew it was going to be a tough game. Nothing was going to be given to them. And maybe we have lost a little bit of that spirit in some ways, but I don't even know if I blame the players because they were never really around guys 
that were like that. Now there's still, you know, you have Josie and you have Michael and you have a few guys and, and goalkeepers and Brad Guzan and those guys that are still around, but it's hard for those guys too, to, how, how do you, how do you show that when the majority of the players are from kind of this new generation who maybe didn't have to, I don't say fight for it. They all had to fight for it in their own way, but, but didn't have to cut their teeth in the same way as some of us that, that maybe, I don't want to dismiss the guys because they've, they've worked their asses to get to where they've gotten to. Uh, and some of them are extremely more talented than me. I just say that there is, uh, yeah, there's something about the grittiness that we lost. It's a tough one to answer. And I don't know where that is, but I think it maybe speaks to that, that 90 to 95 gap. Where, where, are, where are those players? What happened to those guys? You know, I think there's a study to be done there of why that, that generation didn't emerge and, and really push us through like we, we, we should expect, frankly. I don't know. It's I think it's one. interesting because I think recently Jay Demerit said something kind of along those lines and he pinpointed Pulisic as a guy that he thinks kind of has those qualities, but maybe is the only one and that's where there's disconnect. But I do think it's interesting that, and I kind of wanted to ask earlier and you touched on it about you coming up in the league in this period where, you know, it's not really stable necessarily financially and there's a, there's an underdog spirit to it. And a lot of you guys kind of came up in that environment. And then now, you know, you talk about not being bitter about it, but but a lot of these players have a level of comfort or, or entitlement to them that maybe that generation had that these guys don't. So I, you know, I'm no expert, but no, I no, no. I think that. To hear you talk but no, it's all, it, I, I think, I think that you maybe value the the opportunity a little bit different. You know, when you have to fight for it, it, it I guess in my path and like Jay Demerit, very similar, where nobody believed in us. Obviously, we have plenty of uh, proof and evidence of that. But we still found a way anyway. Uh, you know, Aaron Long's a good example, though. You know, he came through and, and you know, didn't, didn't have that direct path to the top and found a way to do it. So, you know, I, I uh, could see a lot of that in him. Um, but, yeah, it's tough. I mean, they come in and all of a sudden they have these gorgeous multi-million dollar facilities and they weren't changing out of their trunks playing on youth fields, you know, and going to do appearances where nobody shows up and nobody knows who you are. Or if you go to airports, they think you're part of the marching band for a college, you know, I mean, maybe that still happens. I'm sure it does, but, but uh, you know, there was a lot of that and, and the game's changed a lot. And, and obviously social media has made these guys maybe feel bigger than they are in some ways. And, and that kind of gets me back to what I was saying before. You just have, as long as you're continuing to push to try to get better every single day and being better than Nick, Be which I'm going to use Nick. for the rest of my life. Me too. Then, uh, my kids are going to you know, know that, that if I ever have them. <laughs> yeah, don't name him Nick, right? Because you don't want anybody to be better than. Him. But uh, yeah, I don't know. There's some, there's definitely something there. I, I think it'd be, it'd be naive, I think, of us to to say otherwise. How we get that back? I, I think I think we're all looking for, or at least for me, I'm looking for a blend where we have a little bit of that spirit and that grittiness, but we can play. And I think some of the best teams in the world can do both. They they can fight when they need to fight, and then they they can put the ball on the ground and be sophisticated if they need to be as well. And we're just not there yet. And I think we are, if I, if I look at it through that lens and I think we are still trying to figure out what that identity is. And, and now we have a coach who's trying to make us sophisticated um, in, in a way that I don't think we're ready for, or maybe don't have the horses to, to pull off, it, pull it off exactly the way he wants, but there's only what three or four teams that can play like Manchester city or Ajax or Barcelona. There's not that many teams in the world that can do it. And I don't see too many national teams do it outside of maybe Spain. So before we, we're going to do a last segment here, but before we do that, I just want to ask you, why, why should we be optimistic as U.S. soccer fans, as American outlaws? Why should we continue to be traveling, you know, COVID-19 aside, 
things were just we'll be not, traveling not again. We'll be traveling again. We'll be traveling again. But but why? Tell us why, Jimmy. You're a pump up guy. Tell us why we should still be going to these games and paying ticket prices and and traveling. Yeah. So for me, it's it's easy uh, because I live it. I I help coach a USL League Two team here, the San Francisco Glens. I see the talent not only that that team. I don't know that, that, that players gravitate towards you can, so I see a level of talent there, but also the Glens have a youth Academy and I get to see their games and I get to watch them play. And I'm excited about the future. And not only that, I feel like the evolution of not only the player, but the referees and the coaching is only going to get better right now. It feels like we're kind of in our own way, you know, us soccer and the kinks of the development Academy, we just got folded now that MLS is assuming in some ways I think that's all going to be a good thing. I still think it's part of the growing pains of the sport in this country. We're still relatively young as opposed to all the other leagues and federations around the world and, and all the other sports leagues that live in this country or exist in this country. And I, you guys all have heard this before. This is all, I'm not, I'm not changing my rhetoric with regard to the pump up stuff that you heard before, but because of the amount of kids that we have, I'm excited for the future and, and their hunger and their thirst to get better. And because of the numbers, we should be able to produce uh, a national team that you guys should be very proud of and that I will be very proud of. The next step for us though, is, is scouting. It's getting these kids to get real looks from coaches that know what they're looking at. And there's a lot of politics that exists in youth soccer. It's a billion dollar industry. And my concern is that it's more about making money than it is about truly developing these players, not only as players, but as people. You know, only the top 1% are probably going to make it to MLS or Europe or to the national team. What happens to the other 99%? How do we get them and keep them engaged, whether it's becoming coaches, becoming scouts, becoming analysts, becoming referees, Fans. whatever it is. There's, there, we, we really miss out on a huge amount of people that might actually have a bad taste in their mouth because of their experience at the end of whatever their career is. So I just really hope that the new president comes in and, and tries to get everybody on the same page, rowing the boat the same the same way and somehow can fight through a lot of this because I think if there's more things opened up and things are more transparent, uh, it's just going to give more people opportunities and just make our national team even better. But I'm excited. I mean, honestly, I'm excited. I, I sit here and I criticize and I hold people accountable because I, I expect more. And especially from people that, that have the experience to, to, to do more and to do better. And I think if we do that collectively, whether that's, you know, me alone on social media or AO, and I love that you guys are, making sure your voices are heard. I mean, you guys matter. I, that I, I'm kind of sad that I never really got to play in front of you guys in a meaningful way. Uh, not, when, not to where you guys are now. I know I got a couple tastes of you guys along the way, but, but um, not to the point where you guys are as strong of a force. And now I get to be part of AO, which is a lot cooler uh, in some ways. Uh, less pressure, I'd say. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I've given you a straight answer. I don't know if that's going to be, but, but when I see what hap what's happening on the ground, the grassroots level, it does give me a lot of hope that, that the sport can and we can do something special at it. I just think we're in a bit of a crossroads in a lot of different ways with, with regard to kind of MLS's maturation, U.S. soccer's involvement and how they can get out of their own way and maybe let a third party now be in charge of development as opposed to them. Um, and I just think we have to work through that a little bit before things really kick on. And the pressure's on because it's really important for us to have a good world cup in particular in 2026 since we're hosting it. So I think there's an emphasis on that. And that's, I assume what we're working against. Obviously we want to qualify for 2022, but um, 
but 2026 is super important. So I don't know. I don't think I sold it very well. Not that I kind of thinking through it in my head, but, but uh, from what I see and what I live, I'm excited about the future. I just hope that, that we're working to make better players as opposed to just trying to make money. All right. The last segment of this show was called the Jimmy quiz. <laughs> we've, got, we've got questions for you about your career and I, and I'm wondering which ones you can answer. All right. Question number one, you have scored 20 MLS golazos in your career. How many total shots did you have? <laughs> 20. <laughs> I made every, I made every shot. Uh, that's a great question. I'll say like 62. 129. No way. Where? <laughs> I don't. Who took those stats? I physically watched every game you've ever played. <laughs> 129 shots? Damn. That's, that's what I read on MLS.com. They don't mm. lie. Suspect. All right. Question number two. In your last Studio 90 interview before the 2006 World Cup match against Ghana, <laughs> which I referenced earlier, which band's T-shirt were you wearing in the interview? Tool. Oh, wow. got it. Love it. I had my uh, red corduroy pants on too. Those are, those are my those are my grandpa's pants. Love nice. it. I'll play Vicarious. Have right you seen them live? When we, when we edit this back. <laughs> no, I have not uh, seen it live. I didn't see them live. I no. have not. Others on this. Chris, did you? I, I wish. didn't go. Corey oh did. God, Corey. Anyways, yeah. go ahead. Move on. I know. Okay. I Question know. number three. In your 2006 match against Italy in the 2006 World Cup, can you name the it Italian starting eleven? <laughs> Probably not. Um, Buffon, Nesta, Cannavaro. Um, God, I can't even remember who Zambrata, De Rossi, Luca Toni. Uh, Pirlo. Uh, is it Iskier? No, is it Gilardino or did he come on? Oh, he came he on. Came on. Is it Iskierda? What? Who? Zicardo. Oh, was it? Yeah. Christian, okay. Is it Christian Zicardo? The Zicardo. Right okay, yeah. It was Zicardo. Yeah. And then Del Piero came on. Yeah, I knew that. Gattuso came on. Jeez, and Gilardino. And, subs. Yeah. Who'd I miss? Who no, else? No, was... no. Gilardino did start. You were oh, right. I started. Okay, Gilardino started. Iaquinta came on for Iaquinta. That's what I was yeah. thinking of. Iaquinta, yeah. Yep. Impressive. And then still. who else? Who else was on the who else started? Z Buffon, Zicardo, Nesta, Cannavaro, Zambrota, Perota, uh, Pirlo. Perota. That's it is. Yeah. Did yeah, you yeah, say yeah. Potty? Telling you. Did he start? Yeah. Francisco Totti started? Okay. Look yeah. at that game. That's a, an amazing game a, by the team. U.S. soccer. Oh, memorable. Amazing. Okay, last question. I'm deep in the trenches of the internet here, but uh, Transfer Market is an English website that lists players' current and former market value. Yeah. What, what would you say that your highest value was according to <laughs> Transfer Market and when it was and when was it? Uh, I'll say a million dollars, 2000, wow. at the end of 2006. <laughs> You've looked this up. Wow. <laughs> Is that what it was? It was, yeah, not, it, this says 990K in October 2006. So, so I, 
was going to Ham or Hanover with Steve Terundolo and the January camp of 2007. And uh, Steve was pushing really hard for me behind the scenes. And I was, my transfer value was a million dollars. So I woke up that morning going, I feel like a million Dude. bucks today. And I was, I was <laughs> right. Awesome. But I'm right. So, but that was true. That was my joke. And you guys laughed just like everybody else. It's a good one. For no, me. it's got uh, a lot, a lot of mileage in that one. So, so it didn't happen. It fell through at the last minute, unfortunately, but I leveraged that into getting a better deal with MLS. But I, I was pretty bummed because it would have been cool to go play with Steve and to play in the Bundesliga. But uh, yeah, so I knew my value. I didn't, I, that's why I said the end of 2006, but that was uh, yeah. January 2006. Jimmy, you're a million dollars in my heart. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. I love that. Well, Thank you. Jimmy, on behalf of the American Outlaws and the listeners, we would just want to say thank you for taking some time out for us today and, and really getting, getting into the weeds of, of where we're at right now with U.S. soccer. And um, thanks for sharing some of your stories. We always love having you around. We appreciate what you do for AO, and uh, we look forward to having you on again soon. No, I love you guys. Thank you for having me on. And, and um, yeah, I try to be as open of a book as possible. If only if it helps, you know, the next generation or another player that's hearing it. Um, that's that's what I'm here. I care about the sport a ton and I just want to see it grow and, and have success. So that's why I'm here.